Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 3 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 3, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Boulay. Joanna of Navarre, Chapter 1, Part 1 Joanna, or Jane of Navarre, the consort of Henry IV, is one of those queens of England whose records, as connected with the history of this country, are of a very obscure and mysterious character. Yet the events of her life, when traced through foreign chronicles and unpublished sources of information, are replete with interest, forming an unprecedented chapter in the history of female royalty. Joanna was the second daughter of a prince of evil repute, Charles de Albrey, King of Navarre, surnamed the Bad, whose mother was the only child of Louis X of France, by Clements of Hungary, and, being barred by the Salicoy law from the throne of France, espoused the Count of Evreux and transmitted to her son the petty kingdom of Navarre. By this illustrious maternal descent, the father of Joanna was representative of the elder line of St. Louis. Her mother was Jane, the daughter of the gallant and unfortunate John, King of France. Joanna was born about the year 1370. She was contracted, in 1380, to John, heir of Castile, at which time her eldest brother Charles, heir of Navarre, was married to the sister of that prince. Political reasons caused her appointed bridegroom, on the death of his father, to break his engagement with Joanna, and to espouse a princess of Aragon. The intrigues and crimes of Charles the Bad, who was perpetually engaging in some unprincipled project or another, with a view to establishing himself on the disputed throne of his grandfather, rendered the early youth of Joanna and her brethren a season of painful vicissitude. On one of these occasions, when this unquiet prince had embroiled himself with the regents of France, Joanna and her two elder brothers, Charles and Pierre of Navarre, having been sent for better security to the castle of Bretilleul in Normandy, were, in the year 1381, made prisoners and carried to Paris, where they were detained as hostages for their father's future conduct. Charles Le Mauvais, finding his entreaties for their liberation fruitless, out of revenge, suborned a person to poison both the regents. The emissary was detected and put to death, but Charles, the greater criminal of the two, was out of the reach of justice. Joanna and her brother might have been imperiled by the lawless conduct of their father, had they not been in the hands of generous foes, the brothers of their deceased mother. But, though detained for a considerable time as state prisoners in Paris, they were affectionately and honorably treated by the court of France. 
their liberation was finally obtained through the mediation of the king of castile whose sister the bride of young charles of navarre with unceasing tears and supplications wrought upon him to intercede for their release thus did joanna of navarre owe her deliverance to the prince by whom she had been betrothed and forsaken in the year thirteen eighty six a marriage was negotiated between joanna and john de montfort duke of bretagne surnamed the valiant this prince who was in the decline of life had already been married twice on the death of his last duchess without surviving issue the dukes of berry and burgundy fearing the duke would contract another english alliance proposed their niece joanna of navarre to him for a wife the lady jane of navarre joanna's aunt had married seven years previously the viscount de rohan a vassal and kinsman of the duke of bretagne and it was through the agency of this lady that the marriage between her new sovereign and her youthful niece was brought about that this political union was notwithstanding the disparity of years and the violent temper of the duke agreeable to the bride there is full evidence in the grateful remembrance which joanna retained of the good offices of her aunt on this occasion long after the nuptial tie between her and her mature lord had been dissolved by death and she had entered into matrimonial engagements with henry the fourth of england the duke of bretagne having been induced by the representations of the lady of rohan and the nobles attached to the cause of france to lend a favorable ear to the overtures of this alliance demanded joanna's hand of her father and gave commission to pierre de lesnerac to man and appoint a vessel of war to convey the young princess to the shores of bretagne pierre embarked on the twelfth of june thirteen eighty six there is in previews historiques a memorial of the expenses of pierre de lesnerac for this voyage specifying that he stocked the vessels with the provisions required for the royal bride and her train the contract of marriage between the duke of bretagne and joanna was signed at pampeluna august twenty fifth thirteen eighty six the king of navarre engaged to give his daughter one hundred and twenty thousand livres of gold of the coins of the kings of france and six thousand livres of the rents due to him on the lands of the viscount de avranches the duke on his side assigned to the princess for her dower the cities of nantes and garonne the barony of ray of chatelanec de tufan and garichet joanna then departed with pierre de lesnerac and her escort for bretagne and on the eleventh of september thirteen eighty six was married to the duke of bretagne at Salay near garonne in the presence of many of the nobles knights and squires of bretagne the succession of feasts and pageants of the most splendid description were given by the duke of bretagne at nantes in honor of his nuptials with his young bride in the beginning of the new year february thirteen eighty seven in token of their mutual affection and delight in their union the duke and duchess exchanged gifts of gold sapphires pearls and other costly gems with horses falcons and various sorts of wines 
Joanna appears to have possessed the greatest influence over her husband's heart, and to have been treated by him with the fondest consideration on all occasions, although her father was unable to fulfill his promise with regard to the portion the duke was to have received with her. The death of Joanna's father, which took place the same year, was attended with circumstances of peculiar horror. He had long been suffering from a complication of maladies. In hopes of recovering his paralytic limbs from their mortal chillness, he caused his whole person to be sewed up in cloths, dripped in spirits of wine and sulfur. One night, after these bandages had been fixed, neither knife nor scissors being at hand, the careless attendant supplied the flame of the candle to sever the needle with which the linen had been sewn. The spirits of wine instantly ignited, and the wretched Charles was burned so dreadfully that, after lingering several days, he expired January 1st, 1387, leaving his throne to his gallant patriotic son, Charles the Good, and his name to the general reprobation of all French chroniclers. The Bretons, who had, according to Don Maurice, boded no good either to themselves or to their duke, from his connection with this prince, far from sympathizing with the grief of their young duchess for the tragic death of her last surviving parent, rejoiced in the deliverance of the earth from a monster whose crimes had rendered him a disgrace to royalty. The last bad act of the life of Charles Le Malvay had been to insinuate to his irascible son-in-law that Oliver de Clisson entertained a criminal passion for the young Duchess of Bretagne, and this idea excited in his mind a thirst for vengeance, which nearly involved him and all connected with him in ruin. In early life, John the Valiant and Clisson had been united in the tenderest ties of friendship. The courage and military skill of Clisson had greatly contributed to the establishment of this prince's claims to the dukedom of Bretagne. Latterly, however, Clisson had opposed the duke's political predilections in favor of England, as productive of much evil to Bretagne, and he had further caused great offense to the duke, by ransoming, at his own expense, John, Count de Penthevray, the rival claimant of the duchy, for his long captivity in England, and marrying him to his eldest daughter and co-heiress, Margaret de Clisson, just at the time when there appeared a prospect of the Duchess Joanna, bringing an heir to Bretagne. Clisson was the commander of the armament preparing by France for the invasion of England, which was to sail from Treguer in Bretagne, the king and regents of France, imagining they had wholly secured the friendship of the duke, by his marriage with his young kinswoman, Joanna of Navarre. Their plans were completely frustrated by the unexpected arrest of Clisson by the duke, of which Froissart gives the following lively account, attributing, however, to political motives, a proceeding which appears to have been dictated by furious jealousy. Dissembling the deadly malice of his intentions under the deceitful blandishments with which the fell designs of hatred are so frequently masked. He wrote the most affectionate letters to the constable, requesting his presence, as a vassal peer of Bretagne, at a parliament which he had summoned to meet at Vannes, where his duchess was then holding her court at the castle of de la Motte. Suspecting no ill, the constable came with other nobles and knights to attend this parliament. 
the duke gave a grand dinner to the barons of bretagne at his castle de la motte and entertained them with an appearance of the most affectionate hospitality till a late hour the constable of france then invited the duke and the same company to dine with him on the following day the duke accepted the invitation very frankly and behaved in the most friendly manner seating himself among the guests with whom he ate drank and conversed with every appearance of good will when the repast was concluded he invited the constable clisson the lord de beaumanoir and some others to come with him and see the improvements made by him at his fine castle of ermine which he had nearly rebuilt and greatly beautified on the occasion of his late marriage with the princess of navarre the duke's behavior had been so gracious and winning that his invitation was frankly accepted and the unsuspecting nobles accompanied him on horseback to the castle when they arrived the duke the constable the lords laval and beaumanoir dismounted and began to view the apartments the duke led the constable by the hand from chamber to chamber and even into the cellars where wine was offered when they reached the entrance of the keep the duke paused and invited clisson to enter and examine the construction of the building while he remained in conversation with lord de laval the constable entered the tower alone and ascended the staircase when he had passed the first floor some armed men who had been ambushed there shut the door below seized him dragged him into an apartment and loaded him with three pair of fetters as they were putting them on they said my lord forgive what we are doing for we are compelled to do this by the authority of the duke of bretagne when the lord de laval who was at the entrance of the tower heard the door shut with violence he was afraid of some plot against his brother-in-law the constable and turning to the duke who looked as pale as death was confirmed that something wrong was intended and cried out ah my lord for god's sake what are they doing? Do not use any violence against the constable. Lord de Laval, said the duke, mount your horse and go home while you may. I know very well what I am about. My lord, said Laval, I will never depart without my brother-in-law, the constable. Then came the Lord de Beaumanoir, whom the duke greatly hated, and asked where the constable was. The duke, drawing his dagger, advanced to him and said beaumanoir dost thou wish to be like thy master my lord replied beaumanoir i cannot believe my master to be otherwise than in good plight i ask thee again if thou wouldst wish to be like him reiterated the duke yes my lord replied beaumanoir well then beaumanoir said the duke holding the dagger towards him by the point since thou wouldst be like him, thou must thrust out one of thine eyes. This malignant taught on the personal defect of the constable, emanating, as it doubtless did, from the jealous ire that was boiling in his breast, came with a worse grace from the ungrateful duke, since Clisson had lost his eye while fighting bravely in the cause at the Battle of Array. The Lord de Beaumanoir, seeing from the expression of the duke's countenance that things were taking a bad turn cast himself on his knee and began to expostulate with him on the treachery of his conduct toward the constable and himself go go interrupted the duke thou shalt have neither better nor worse than he 
he then ordered beaumanoir to be arrested dragged into another room and loaded with fetters his animosity against him almost equaling his hatred to clisson the duke then called to him the seigneur Basvalin, in whom he had the greatest confidence and ordered him to put the constable to death at midnight as privately as possible Basvalin represented in vain the perilous consequences that would ensue but the duke said he had resolved upon it and would be obeyed during the night however his passion subsiding he repented of having given such orders and at daybreak sent for Basvalin and asked if his directions had been obeyed on being answered in the affirmative he cried out how is clisson dead yes my lord he was drowned last night and his body is buried in the garden said Basvalin. alas replied the duke this is a most pitiful good morning be gone messire jehan and never let me see you more as soon as Basvalin had retired the duke abandoned himself to agonies of remorse he groaned and cried aloud in his despair till his squires valets and officers of the household flew to his succor supposing he was suffering intense bodily pain but no one dared to speak to him and he refused to receive food Basvalin, being informed of his state returned to him and said my lord as i know the cause of your misery i believe i can provide a remedy since there is a cure for all things not for death replied the duke Basvalin then told him that foreseeing the consequences and the remorse he would feel if the blind dictates of his passion had been obeyed he had not executed his commands and that the constable was still alive what messire jehan is he not dead exclaimed the duke and falling on Basvalin's neck embraced him in an ecstasy of joy the lord de laval then entering renewed his supplications for the life of his brother-in-law clisson reminding the duke in a very touching manner of the early friendship that had subsisted between them when they were educated together in the same hotel with the duke of lancaster and what good service clisson had since done him at the battle of Auray, and ended with imploring the duke to name any ransom he pleased for his intended victim this was touching the right string for the fury of the duke abated like that of ancient pistol at the allusion to the crowns and he named one hundred thousand florins the strong town of jugon and several of the constable's castles as the price of his relenting the lord de laval then obtained an order from the duke for admittance to clisson for the gate of the keep was locked and the keys were in the duke's chamber clisson who was fettered down to the floor in momentary expectation of death felt his spirits revive at the sight of his faithful brother-in-law and extravagant as the terms were which the duke of bretagne had named he offered no objection to them verifying the satanic aphorism that everything a man hath he will give for his life clisson and beaumanoir were then released from their fetters wine and plenty of provisions were set before them for it seemed they had kept fast as well as vigil in their dungeons at ermine castle till the murderous ire of john the valiant was overcome 
partly by the remorseful feelings which had disturbed his mind as soon as he supposed the crime had been perpetrated, and partly by the prospect of so much unexpected plunder as the Florins, the castles, and the town, which had been guaranteed as the price of his relenting. In four days' time, the conditions were performed on the part of the constables by the Lords de Laval and Beaumanoir. The Duke of Bretagne was put into possession of the town of Jugon, the chateaux Brock, Jocelyn, and Le Blanc, and the hundred thousand florins were paid into his exchequer. But like most of the gains of iniquity, these acquisitions were of little ultimate advantage to the duke. The arrest of the constable, though it only lasted for four days, had the effect of averting the threatened invasion from the shores of England. As he was the commander-in-chief of the expedition, the officers of the armament, some of whom had joined it reluctantly from the first, allowed their men to disband themselves, and, before their general was released from his perilous but brief captivity within the walls of Ermine, the whole force had melted away and dispersed. Clisson carried his complaints to the court of France, and, while a general feeling of indignation was excited at the baseness of the Duke of Bretagne's conduct on this occasion, there were not wanting those whose invidious feelings toward the innocent duchess led them to glance at her as the prompter of the deed, by recalling to the attention of the enemies of the house of Albrey how France had been once before agitated by the assassination of Sir Charles de Espain, the then constable of France, by her father, the late king of Navarre. Several indignant remonstrances were addressed to the Duke of Bretagne by the offended sovereign and regents of France, but, so far from making the slightest concession or reparation for the outrages of which he had been guilty, John the Valiant told the Bishop of Langres, and the other envoys from the court of France, that the only thing which he repented was, that he had not slain the constable when he had him in his power. The Duke's insolent reply to the ambassadors was followed by a declaration of war from France. He expected nothing less, says Froissart, but his hatred against Clisson was so great that it deprived him of the use of his reason. In fact, the frantic lengths to which this feeling carried him can only be accounted for on the grounds of the jealousy which the incendiary insinuations of the late King of Navarre had excited in his mind. The conduct of the Duchess was, however, so prudent and irreproachable, that no part of these angry and suspicious feelings were directed against her. She appears, from first to last, to have enjoyed the undivided affection and esteem of her lord. During this stormy period, she continued to reside with him at the strong castle of de la Motte, but they seldom ventured beyond the walls of Vannes, for fear of ambuscades. The duke garrisoned and vittled the principal towns and castles in his dominions, and entered into a strict alliance with the young king of Navarre, Joanna's brother, whom he promised to assist in recovering his Norman dominions, if he would unite with him and the English against the French. In the midst of these troubles, Joanna was delivered of her first-born child at the castle of Nantes, a daughter who was baptized by the bishop of Vannes, and received the name of Joanna. The infant only survived a few months. The grief of the young duchess, for this bereavement, was at length 
mitigated by a second prospect of her bringing an heir to her childless lord's dominions but the anticipations of this joyful event were clouded by the gloomy aspect of the affairs of bretagne the duke having involved himself in a fearful predicament with france the council of the duke strongly urged the necessity of peace with france among other arguments they represented the situation of the duchess saying your lady is now far advanced in her pregnancy and you should pay attention that she is not alarmed and as to her brother he can give you but little support for he has enough to do himself the council concluded by imploring him to make peace with the lord of clisson the duke was much struck on hearing this reasoning and remained some time leaning over a window that opened into a court his council were standing behind him after some musing he turned round and said how can i ever love oliver de clisson when the thing i most repent of in this world is not putting him to death when i had him in my castle of ermine stubborn and headstrong as the duke was the fear of agitating his young consort decided him at last to yield an ungracious submission to his suzerain accordingly he went to paris and performed his long withheld homage to charles the sixth and the feudal service of pouring water into a golden basin and holding the napkin for the king to wash all this was done with evident ill-will but the french monarch and princes overlooked the manner of the duke out of consideration for their kinswoman the duchess joanna who without taking any very decided part in politics appears always to have used her influence for the purpose of conciliation few princesses could have been placed in a situation of greater difficulty than joanna while presiding over a court so torn with contending factions as that of bretagne as the consort of a prince old enough to have been her grandfather and of so violent and irascible a temper that from the time of their marriage he was always involving himself and his dominions in some trouble or other yet the combative disposition of john the valiant need scarcely excite our wonder when we reflect on the history of his early life and the stormy scenes in which his infancy and childhood were passed he might have said with truth i was rocked in a buckler and fed from a blade more than once was he brought forth in a nurse's arms amidst the tumult of battle to encourage the partisans of his father's title to the dukedom of bretagne or placed in his cradle on the ramparts of hennebon during the memorable defence of that place by his mother margaret of flanders the violent temper of the duke appears to have been chiefly exercised on men for though he had three wives he was tenderly beloved by them all in person this prince was a model of manly beauty his portrait by the friar jean chaperon in the church of cordeliers in reims painted immediately after the decisive battle of array which established his long disputed claim to the throne of bretagne reminds us of the head of a youthful apollo so graceful and exquisitely proportioned are the features he wears the crown and ermine mantle of bretagne with a small ruff supported by a collar ornamented with gems and clasped before with a jewel forming the center of a rose his favorite dog perhaps the faithless hound of oracular celebrity which forsook the luckless charles de blois on the eve of the battle of array to fawn on him is represented in the act of licking his shoulder 
In the year 1388, Joanna brought an heir to Bretagne, who was baptized Pierre, but the duke afterwards changed his name to John. This much-desired event was soon followed by the birth of the Princess Marie. The Duchess, whose children were born in very quick succession, was on the eve of her third confinement, when her lord's secret treaties with his old friend and brother-in-law, Richard II of England, drew from the regents of France very stern remonstrances. An embassy extraordinary, headed by no less a person than the Duke de Berry, was sent by the council to complain of his intelligence with the enemies of France, and to require him to renew his oath of allegiance as a vassal peer of that realm. So far, however, was the Duke of Bretagne from being impressed with the high rank and importance of these envoys, that, suspecting they intended to appeal to his nobles against his present line of conduct, he determined, in violation of these considerations in all ages, have rendered the persons of ambassadors sacred, to arrest them all, and keep them as hostages till he had made his own terms with France. Le Moyne de Saint-Denis, a contemporary historian, declares, he hears this from the very lips of the ambassadors, who related to him the peril from which they escaped, through the prudence of Joanna. Fortunately for all parties, it happened that her younger brother, Pierre of Navarre, was at the court of Nantes, and, being apprised of the duke's design, hastened to Joanna, whom he found at her toilet, and confided to her the alarming project then in agitation. Joanna, who was then in hourly expectation of the birth of her fourth child, immediately perceived the dreadful consequences that would result from such an unheard-of outrage. She took her infants in her arms, and flew to the duke's apartment, half-dressed as she was, with her hair loose and disheveled, and throwing herself at his feet, bathed in tears, conjured him, for the sake of those tender pledges of their mutual love, to abandon the rash design that passion had inspired, which, if persisted in, must involve himself and all belonging to him in utter ruin. The duke, who had kept his design a secret from his wife, was surprised at the manner of her address. After an agitated pause, he said, Lady, how you came by your information I know not, but rather than be the cause of such distress to you, I will revoke my order. Joanna then prevailed on him to meet the ambassadors in the cathedral the next day, and afterwards to accompany them to Tours, where the king of France gave him a gracious reception, and induced him to renew his homage, by promising to unite his second daughter, Joanna of France, with the heir of Bretagne. End of section three. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.